Well, Lord, we just speak your name and we thank you for the kindness of who you are. We thank you, God, that you are good. We proclaim it and declare that you are a good God. And Lord, we just put our hearts towards you and we say this is the day that you've made. We invite you to come and touch us as we hear your word that you would just impact us with the truth of it because there's so much life and abundance that's available to us. Help us to walk in your ways and to see your glory in our lives. God, we're so grateful for all that you've done. And Lord, I just pray for your peace and your grace and your mercy to flow in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we had an interesting uh, morning, multiple things going on here, so you don't have your little slideshow that you usually get, but I'm going to give you a wonderful title, A Father's Promise to His Son. Now, this is a year of promise for us, you know, the, uh, the Lord's just, it, it's going to be great to see some, some of the things that the Lord's going to do in our lives this year to fulfill his purpose and his promises to us. And so what we're going to look at is a father's promise to his son, and that's God the Father to Jesus Christ. And we'll see what that promise is as we get going here. Um, And we'll look at it a little more in depth towards the middle and the end of the sermon. But that's the idea I want us to see is that God is a God of promises. He has promises, and not only that, he had a promise to his son. And so let's start in John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a a very, very well-known passage of Scripture. And uh, it's Jesus saying it. And he's telling us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son who would ever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So the scripture in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and it's God's heart towards the world. And he said he sent his son. So we have to figure out why in the world did Jesus have to come. And I think most of us in this room know that the reason Jesus had to come is because of the sinfulness of man. Because Adam came, God placed him in command of this world. And when Adam decided to rebel against God, see, it wasn't just eating the fruit. Some people just focus on the fruit aspect of it. They ate of the tree, so they they ate this fruit, and they were just disobedient. Why was God so upset at just such a little dinky thing? They ate his, his fruit, right? But it was more than that. It's that they believed the lies of the enemy. They believed that the enemy said that they wouldn't die if they ate of the fruit. They rebelled against the commands of God, and they rejected God in the sense that they chose to, to take the word of, of the devil over God. And they ate of the fruit because they wanted to become like God. And in doing it, God warned them, the day that you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. And there was spiritual death that took place. And the book of Romans tells us that in Adam, all men die. Everyone dies through Adam. And so there's this death that was brought onto the world that God had created good. And everything was very good. But man, through his choice and decision and rebellion, 
he not only died, but he gave the rule of this world over to the enemy. And that's where, you know, Jesus even said, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing on me. The ruler of this world. Because at that point he was, because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't shed his blood and he hasn't, hadn't raised again from the dead and destroyed the power of the enemy. And so... Um, because of this condition, God came up with this plan. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. We're going to look at this plan in just a second, but there's some evidence from Scripture that this plan and the promise of salvation starts in the heart of the Father, even before the heavens and the earth were created, even before anything took place. God had a plan of salvation because God knows all things. Now, it makes no sense to us many times because we see the death and destruction, all the stuff that goes on, why God would allow any of this to take place. But the small version of this is that God had to have people who would worship him and choose him by choice, which meant that there was an opportunity to not choose him because God wanted to base it on love and God wants all this stuff to, to flow out of a relationship with love and love can never be forced. You can force people to do things but you can never force a person to love you. Love is a choice. It's a decision. It's an act of our will to love someone and to choose to give them of our own heart and our own life. That is always a choice, and it can't be forced. Um, <laughs> maybe you heard the one of the little kid, you know, parent told him to sit down, and he said, I'll sit, but I'm going to be standing on the inside. You know, that kind of... <sighs> um, this rebellion that God came to actually save us and free us and release us from. So it says in Acts chapter 2, this is, this is uh, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. But he's talking to the rulers and the leaders of the people. And um, he's talking to everyone, but specifically to them. And so in Acts chapter 2, in verse uh, 22, he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarite, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here's the promise. Here's the promise that the Father made to the Son. Verse 27, But you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Because Jesus, God gave his Son for the specific person, purpose of dying on the cross and raising again. And he gave him a promise. If you will go through this, I give you power and authority to be killed and to be raised again from the dead. Now that... Another thing is that doesn't really make a lot of sense is because we say, well, what in the world is that all about? Why? What's the plan? Why is this plan the way it was? 
Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to lay down his life? Because some people make God into this incredible, brutal, bloodthirsty maniac, right? They, they say that. They, they just say, how can he do this? How can he destroy his son? And there are even those who, who, um, who actually try to rewrite the scripture and say that, that no, God would never do that. But you see, the thing is, is that God never forced Jesus to do anything. He invited him and asked him. It was a plan, a predetermined plan of God the Father that the Son would come and lay down his life as a sacrifice for many. And um, so what is this plan all about? Well, the plan was that Jesus would come to earth as a human being and that he would physically be in the flesh just like you and I. He had to be a regular, normal human being. But he was God at the same time, and that's what always blows our minds. It just we, we just can't comprehend it. Well, if he is God, he could use all of his power as God, and he wouldn't really truly be human. But Scripture tells us that Jesus laid aside every right and privilege. We'll read that in a passage later. But I'm going to say this part now. He laid aside his, his being God and using his own power, using his own ability, he totally submitted himself to the, the will of the Father. He didn't make any determination or decision apart from God the Father. That was part of the plan. He was going to come and be a human being just like us, not use any of his power, but use the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus, you know, when he, he was baptized in the water, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he was anointed. He was called the anointed one because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus came as a man, and he lived as a man. He operated as a man. He didn't operate as God. He could have used that power. He could have used the ability. He even tells us that when he went to the cross, he could have called, he could have called 10,000 angels to come and deliver him. But he didn't do it. He willingly went to the cross. And so this is the important thing to see, is that God and, and the, the Trinity made this plan, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, before the foundations of the earth, that Jesus Christ would come and be a man. And so he came to be a man. So why? Why did he have to be a man? And what's so important about him actually physically being a man? Well, because at, he came to be what the scripture says in Romans is the second Adam. The first Adam failed. The first Adam brought death to every single one. The first Adam surrendered the rule of the planet to Satan through his following him and submitting to him rather than to God. And so there was this thing that needed to be broken, and the only one who could break it was mankind because God put man in charge. See, God's not going to usurp his own authority even. That's what's so interesting about the way he operates. He gave them this rule and this reign, and they forfeited it, and now he had to send someone who could come and who could bring deliverance. But the only thing was is that every single person in the world was tainted by sin, and every single person was under that, that thing of death. They could not in their own strength or their own ability, do the things that God wanted them to do. And even if they did, they were spiritually dead. And God wanted someone who, who could actually obey him and fulfill um, his plan and purpose while he was cleansed, while he was, was righteous and without sin. So Jesus came to be the second Adam so that he could he could reverse the death that was brought in by Adam so that he could exert authority over this planet again. And so, in order to do that, he had to be without sin. And you know, sometimes, uh, wow, sometimes I think we really... We have a wrong impression of sin. A lot of times we think we do one little thing and that's, oh, that's just a sin, you know, and every we turn everything into a sin. Really what God's talking about 
when he's talking about sin is is our obedience to him and our following after him and our doing the very things that he asks us to do. Um, and sometimes we 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 make sin such a thing that we're we're just totally consumed by it. When as believers we're to be free from the power of sin, we're to walk in the newness of life and to walk in the fullness of what God has done. But Jesus had to come and he had to live without sin. And so what, what does without sin mean for Jesus? It means he did everything the Father asked him to do. Every single thing. He did everything. And he did it with a willing heart. He did it out of love. He did it out of a relationship. You know, the great thing about Jesus in the Old Testament, I, I can't even remember the number. It's very, very few times that you ever see God called Father. When Jesus came, he, he, he communicated a relationship with God, the relationship that he had from the very beginning, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he had this relationship with God that he opened up and he gave himself so completely. And so what he did is he, he says, I only do what I see you doing. And so Jesus fulfilled the purpose of God, everything that God desired. You know, when we have the law, the law, it says, can be wrapped up into two things, love God and love people. And so when Jesus came, he loved God and he loved people to the full extent that God desired it to be. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled everything that God desired for man to be. He came, and even when he confronted people, even when he did things that we would go like, why would he do that? Calling people vipers and snakes and all this kind of stuff, and that doesn't seem to be nice. That must be sin. Well, obviously it wasn't. Because the scripture clearly tells us that he came but and he was tempted in every way but without sin. Jesus Christ never sinned. And so he came to faithfully obey God so that there could be a faithful one. Adam failed, but Jesus didn't. Adam turned aside, but Jesus fixed his eyes upon the purpose of God and he fulfilled it and completed his plan. In John chapter 17, where they have that, his prayer, he's in the garden, remember? And he prays this prayer. And one of the things that he says in that prayer is he says, I've done everything you've asked me to do, everything that you required of me. And so he was without sin. And so then, the reason that he needed to be without sin is so that he could offer his life as a sacrifice. Jesus said, if you want to read that, it's in Mark chapter 10. This is, this is kind of a, a key point that uh, uh, in the life of Jesus, in the life of his ministry, the disciples have been with him for a while and they've been following him and trusting him and all that kind of stuff and learning of him. And Peter gets this revelation and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And of course he says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it, but my father from heaven, he's shown you who I am. And so you understand this. But then what took place after that, after that confession Things changed in the ministry of Jesus. He began to tell them that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he began to tell them that. And in 1045, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus knew from the very beginning uh, that his purpose was to be a ransom. His purpose was to lay down his life, to pay a debt for those who could not pay that debt, those who could not free themselves. And the idea of this ransom is, is, is a payment for a slave. And so that we're in the slavery of sin, we're captured in it, and there's no way that we can get out. We're bound and we're held captive, and he came to pay the price so that we could be free. He came to be the Lamb of God and to defeat the power of the enemy. He came to raise again from the dead. That's the crazy thing. And remember, this is part of the promise that, that God had for him, 
the promises that were even in the scripture. And they said that, that I will not allow your body to decay and to rot. And this was prophetic words that were speaking of Jesus because Jesus continually said that he would be in the tomb for, for three days and three nights, then he would raise again. So he knew he was going to raise again because of the promise of the Father. He was absolutely sure on the promises of God, and he never wavered. He struggled, of course, in the garden. He struggled. There. Struggling is not a bad thing. You know, when we struggle and we work through something, we come out as purified gold. You know, if we do it in the right fashion. Jesus in the garden, man, he was stressed out. He, was, he says he was, he was just stressed out to the point of death. He was just, it was just such a, a huge thing upon him, but he still gave his will. That's what he said. Not my will, but yours be done. I want your will to be done. And it was his choice. It was his decision. And if you think for a minute that Jesus couldn't have said no, then we don't understand what his free will was because he could have made a decision other than what he did. But he didn't. He willfully went to the cross for us, even though it was anguish to his soul. And he went to the grave so that he could take the, the, the keys of death and hell that he could take these keys and snatch them from the enemy, the power that he had over, over people, which was death. And he came to snatch those things and in the resurrection be the very first one who was raised from the dead. Now you're saying, well, no, there were other ones raised from the dead. No, we're talking about a person dying and having a resurrection body. He called those, he resuscitated them. <laughs> They came back from the dead, but they weren't resurrected. There's a difference between a resurrection and there's a difference between uh, someone being called back into their body and restored because these are short-term things. He didn't just do it to all who were dead. So there's this resurrection where he's the firstborn, it says, and he was the firstborn, the promise for us. That's a promise for us of our resurrection, that we are going to either be changed. If Jesus were to come right this second, we'd be transformed. But if we pass away, if we, if we end up dying, then there's a promise of a resurrection to be in the presence of God. There's a promise for us to have eternal life with, with a resurrected body. We're not just spirits floating around were as God created us to be. And I think that, you know, the fall when Adam sinned, it brought death, things that never should have entered this world. And so the reason then is to be that he paid the ransom was to, to purchase us, but to also to reconcile mankind with God. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us, makes us able to stand on in the presence of God. But all of this that Jesus was going to do was based upon the promises of God. He says, this is the plan. I want you to go forth. I want you to do this. And he said, yes, I will. And so here's the interesting thing. It's based on the promise of God, the plan of God, and the purpose of the Father. But Jesus, he willfully came he willfully submitted, and he willfully gave his life. That means he purposed in his heart to do it, which is really an important thing for us to see. See, because God will never, God can't even force us to obey. He can't. He's created us that way. <laughs> He's given us the ability to choose, to say yes or no. And he gives us opportunity throughout the scripture. He's always saying things like choose life. You know, choose life. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. You choose the way that you're going to walk and what you're going to do. And so he gives us this choice because he wants it based upon a relationship of love. Not compulsion. Not forcing. Because again, true love can never come from force. It has to come from a purpose and a will. So Jesus, I think, 
very clearly knew that the reason for his incarnation was so that he could go to the cross. Do you remember when John the Baptist was introducing his disciples to Jesus after his baptism? It's in John chapter 1, verse 29, and he sees Jesus and his disciples are hanging out, and he, he goes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew, somehow, understood that Jesus Christ was going to come. And as the Lamb, you remember, you remember the picture of, of the Passover Lamb, the Lamb that they, that they slew and then they ate of his body, right? They ate and they t- took the blood and they, they put it over the doorposts and the lintels of their house so that the angel of death would travel over them. And so he's saying, he's the lamb, he's the one, he's the Passover lamb that's going to shed his blood, and his blood protects us, his blood keeps us when we have faith in him, and his blood cleanses us and washes us. So John the Baptist said, this is the one. But even like three years before Jesus went to the cross, he was proclaiming to the leaders. He was, he was kind of saying it in a strange way where they didn't really understand it. But John gives us an understanding of what he's talking about. So when these guys are arguing with him like they always seem to do, Jesus is talking to him, talking to these um, uh, who are against him. And, and in John 2... He says, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, here's the temple, and if, you ever, if you've ever seen a picture, maybe this would be good if you've never done it. I was so impressed with this the first time I saw it, because, you know, I knew the temple was probably big, but when you... When you look at this model that they had of the city, they had this model that, that they made that was, it's not life-size, but it's scale. And when you look at this thing, when you see Jerusalem, this massive, humongous temple is there. And like they were saying, they've been working on it for 46 years King Herod took the small temple that was that was done in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, and, and those things when they did the one. The people wept because it seemed so small in comparison to Solomon's temple. And so what he did is he destroyed, he actually broke down that temple, widened out the whole mountain, and made this massive, massive temple and it was really like one of the seven wonders of the world. It was just one of the most amazing things. And so when you look at this, this is what you see. And so Jesus says, you know, tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're thinking, you're crazy. 46 years it's taken us to do this and we're still not finished. And you think you can do it in three days. And, and it says right here uh, in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture uh, and the word which Jesus had spoken. See, the disciples didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. And why would you? I mean, there's only one person that's been raised from the dead, like Jesus. And it's never happened before. <laughs> So I don't blame him. He'd even tell him, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to go in the grave for three days, and I'm going to raise again from the dead. And they go, what? I don't understand. No com- no comprende. They didn't get it at all. And so Jesus knew that this is what he was doing and that he was going to do just like we said in in. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that he was going to be a ransom for many. He knew it. That was going to be his purpose. And so then, let's go here. This is a great one because, 
I think it just shows again, Jesus is telling us that he willingly placed himself upon the cross. He made the decision to go through with God's plan because of what it would accomplish. So John chapter 10, verse 11. And this is Jesus' famous famous uh, sermon of the Good Shepherd. He says, I am the Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So here again, he's talking about his death. He knows he's going to the cross. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, and he's not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my own know me. Even as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Of course, he's talking about the Gentiles. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. He says, no one, has, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So he says, I have authority, so where to come? He says, from my Father. I received this command from my Father. Do this. And he says, I'll do it. I will do it. I'll honor you. And he says, the Father loves me because I'm obeying and fulfilling his purpose. And so Jesus very clearly says, no one takes my life. Then let's go to Philippians chapter 2. I know I'm zipping around in the scripture today, but I just want us to see this because this, you know how, You know how it's impossible for us to know people's motives? Sometimes we think we know everybody's motives. Yeah, I I know what they're up to. I know what's behind them. I know what's happening. I know what you're thinking. Well, do you? Sometimes you do. If you know a person well enough, you might know some of the thoughts, but we really don't know the motives and the intents of people's hearts. That's why the Scripture tells us not to judge people. And judgment means like you're, you're going to hell and all this kind of stuff. That's not for us. That's for God to determine. But he says no one knows the, the, what's going on inside of a person except for the spirit of a person. And so this scripture gives us a glimpse into the mindset of Jesus that we, we can see it externally, but we don't know it unless we're told. And I love it how the scripture tells us this. So here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he knew who he was. He knew he was the son, and he knew he would, you know, he's part of the Trinity. He's not surrendering anything of, of who he is or anything like that. It wasn't something that he, position he was grasping for. He had it, and he was in it and experiencing it. He didn't, you know, equate equality with God, something to be grabbed hold of. It says, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So he willfully chose to empty himself. I talked about that a little at the beginning, where he laid aside all of his godly priorities and prerogatives and all the things, not priorities, prerogatives, and all the things that he could have exerted because of who he was and submitted. He humbled himself. It says, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
says, For this reason God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he says, he gives us a glimpse that Jesus wasn't, didn't grasp for things, but he willfully laid himself down. He willfully came because of the promise of God, because of the things that the Father had spoken, because of the plan that he had. Again, he says, I lay down my life. I do it willingly, but I take it up. Now, isn't it interesting how Jesus says, I have authority? That word is, is I usually translated power. It can be power or authority, but it's usually translated power. So some translation says, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it back up again. And uh, so Jesus knew that God had given him that authority. Again, that's based on a promise. I'm not going to allow you to rot away. I'm not going to allow you to do this. And he commanded him to do it, and so he says, I can do it. And then if you remember Jesus when he was on the cross, tells us this in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. But Jesus is hanging on the cross, and one of the seven sayings that he has to say while he is up there, he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And it says, and he breathed, and his spirit went to God. Jesus chose the point that he died. The cross didn't kill him. Well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> he didn't hang there till he totally, completely was dead. He committed his spirit, and he breathed out his last, and committed himself to the Father. And of course, we know that what took place here, this is the time where he went into the grave and during those days it says that he went to the descended into the lower parts of the earth he took he took the keys captive of death and hell and they have no power over us any longer now this is so interesting because a lot of times we we can focus a lot on the cross of Jesus which is good we need to because it's part of what's going on and not really focus super much on the resurrection, but the resurrection and the cross go together. See, the cross without the resurrection leaves us dead in our sins. Yeah, the blood of Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin, but then we're still dead. We're still dead. We're still spiritually dead. And that's why there needed to be a resurrection. Paul, if you want to read this stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's, he's talking about this. He says, you know what? If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, 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 we're goners. I mean, we needed to have new life. So Jesus not only had to come to die on a cross, he had to be raised up from the dead so that he could break the power of death, so that we could become new creatures in Christ. See, when we're born again, what happens is we spiritually become alive. When we come to know Christ, something takes place in us that's not just a, it's not just a cute little saying or a cute little thing that comes again when it says that we're born again. Literally, our spirits come alive. And the scripture says that we're new creatures in Christ, or new creations. It means something new that has never existed before because we were born dead, spiritually dead, and now we're something that we weren't before. Well, we look the same, we act sometimes the same, but you're a new creature in Christ. All things have become new. There's new avenues open because your spirit is alive. We have a relationship with God. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been empowered by God to live the Christian life. I've said this so many different times, but it seems like many times what we have in our mind is we have to live the Christian life in our own strength, and God never wanted that to be. That's why he gave the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus received the Holy Spirit, so he could do, live his purpose in the power of God.
He could have done it on his own, but he decided to lay it aside, remember? So the same thing holds for us. The power of God is in us so that we can overcome. The power of God is in us so that we can live life as God intends it to be. The power of God is in us so that we can live the Christian life. If you try to live the Christian life in your own strength, you're going to fail over and over and over. It'll, you'll, never, you'll never succeed because if the flesh could do it, then why did Jesus come? If we could do it in our own strength and ability, there's no need for a Savior. He came because we can't. And even as we're believers, we can't. The flesh will never profit anything. And so we have to do everything by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus had this promise. If he would go and and if he would give himself and if he would die for our behalf, God said, I'll raise you again from the dead. And he says, I have power and authority to do it. Now the scripture is interesting because Jesus says I I have the power to raise myself, but the scripture says God raised him from the dead. Well, he has power and authority, and so they work hand in hand, Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. There's no separating. They have different aspects of what they do in everything they do, but you see the work of the Trinity in everything that we have. And so God did raise him from the dead. Jesus came back from death. And he destroyed the power of death. And he's, a, he's our promise of a resurrection. He's our promise. You know, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear death. All death is is laying your body aside, waiting for a new one, really. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, we don't like it when people we love die and things happen. But, you know, when, when, when there are believers, there's a, a huge difference. Paul tells, he says, don't grieve like those who, who don't have faith. We have a hope, and the hope is in the in our resurrection because of the resurrection of Jesus. He was the first fruits of the resurrected ones. And so we can trust in that. Now I want to read one more passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. You know, when... Uh, Sometimes when we have promises, we have to go through tough stuff. It's not fun. But if we keep our eyes on the promiser and we keep our eyes on what he's spoken to us, we'll do it. We'll get through. We'll make it. So Hebrews chapter 12, 2 says this. tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And it says it here that what Jesus did is he, when he went to the cross, the reason that he did it is for the joy that was set before him. He was looking beyond the cross. He was looking beyond that to the resurrection. He was looking beyond that to uh, the pleasure of God in being fully obedient to him. He was looking beyond the shame of the cross, despising the shame, it says. He's looking beyond that to see us as fellow heirs, as brothers and sisters, his brothers and sisters, bringing us in to a relationship with the Father. He was looking beyond. And because he had that promise in his heart, he could go through the difficult things that he had to do, and even to the point of death, death on a cross, which was a shameful, terrible, disgusting death. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He grabbed hold of the promises of God and pressed through. 
Now, I wasn't planning on this, but I thought of this as I was saying as Jesus went to the cross. He tells us, he tells us that we need to go to the cross. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross daily. Sometimes it's painful. But when we look at the promises of God, we can discipline ourselves. We can take up our crosses. We can follow him. We can commit ourselves to him even when those people resist us. And that's what this is talking about even after that. It says, remember him. Remember all the suffering that he went through. And you press in. And you continue on. And you keep going. Because you will reach the things of the promises of God. Because God said, I will not let you rot away in the grave. And of course, we know Jesus rose again from the dead because we've said it multiple times with all these different passages. But he he grabbed hold of that promise and he received it. He says, I have the authority to take my life back. And, and he did. And so just with us, I just want to encourage us that, you know, this is our year of promise that the Lord's spoken and he's He's already doing some good things in people's lives. I've, I've seen many good things and heard some really great testimonies. We've seen some, some good stuff, and there's difficult things too. But I want to encourage us to press in and press through those because God is a God of promise. He will fulfill his promises. He will bring them about even when we can't understand how. And sometimes, maybe, our dreams will die. But God's a God of resurrection. So we can't leave that out of play. God is faithful and he's good. So today, Lord, we just uh, ask for your grace and your mercy to just continue to rise up in our hearts. I ask that your hope would be upon us. I just speak the name of Jesus Christ over each one of us and And Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you and remember you and remember your promises because you're faithful to bring them about. And I just ask for those things to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. So may your heart be filled with courage and strength in the Lord. May your eyes be fixed upon him. May you um, endure and press through anything that stands in the way of the promises of God, and receive them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God's good. You have yourself an awesome day, and if you want prayer, let's do it. Woohoo! Okay, I'll get you. I won't leave.